Stanford University. Um, my name is Norman Neymark, and it's a, a real pleasure uh, to welcome you to this evening in honor of Professor Amin Banani on behalf of Stanford University. Uh, we're very grateful uh, for the creation of the Amin Banani Fund for Persian Arts and Letters, which was made possible uh, by the Taslimi Foundation. Our thanks go out to the members of the Banini family uh, and to Shili Banini, who have made the trip to the farm uh, for this occasion. I should say that Stanford Global Studies, of which I am uh, the director, is very proud of the uh, many accomplishments of the Mogadam program in Iranian studies. Our own support of the program uh, has been complemented by a number of major gifts from the Iranian community, and our thanks go, as always, to Hamid and Christina Mogadan and to Bita Bari Habari for their support and inspiration. I mean, these gifts really have set up this program and really made it go. In this vein, I would like to recognize a new gift to the Iranian Studies program from Hassan and Mavash Milani, who have donated a generous trust to the program and since they're here tonight, this is a good time to thank them publicly and in person for their generosity and support. So let's thank them. When I did a bit of searching uh, on the web about Professor Banani, I came across a wonderful picture of him uh, and his uh, friend, Firuz Kazimzada, on their graduation day in 1947. Both were Stanford history majors, as was I. Professor Banani was a Stanford PhD, as was I, and went on to a distinguished career at UCLA. Hopefully my career is as, comes close uh, at Stanford. Uh, Professor Kazemzada got a master's in history at Stanford and went on to Yale for his PhD and a distinguished career as an historian um, uh, of the Near East uh, and the Caucasus. Uh, both of them, uh, and I checked this out with Professor uh, Kazemzada earlier today, both of them knew my advisor uh, quite well, Professor Wayne Vusnich, who was a friend uh, and a, a mentor uh, to me and a mentor to them as well. Uh, he always had a warm spot, spot in his heart for uh, students from parts of the world that were not familiar to most uh, Stanford uh, students or uh, faculty, uh, Kazemzada and Barani uh, included. 
Now enough uh, Stanford lore uh, for the present. Let me now introduce uh, my colleague and friend, Abbas Melani, director of our Iranian studies program. I will give him a short and sweet introduction. Abbas has been a great, and I mean great, director of our program. He has given his heart and soul uh, to this enterprise and made it one of the truly distinguished centers of Iranian studies, especially in areas of Iranian culture and civilization in the world. We are all enormously grateful for his efforts. Abbas. Good evening. Uh, welcome to all of you. Salam Azmukana. Uh, first of all, let me thank Professor Norman Neymark. He is truly a pillar of humanities and global studies at Stanford. He has served with distinction in virtually every key faculty leadership position here at the university. And I think I share everyone's view that we have been extremely fortunate to have him accept the directorship of the Stanford Global Studies. Ever since he has come on board, there is new uh, blood, there is new enthusiasm for the program, and I personally thank him for all his support for Iranian studies. I've been teaching for almost 40 years, and I'm certainly, uh, and I can say it with certainty, that one of the most heartwarming and nerve-wracking experiences of my life as a teacher had to do with Amina Banani. It was a few years ago during Stanford Homecoming Day. In those days, Stanford organizes something called Classes Without Quizzes. Faculty are invited to teach a class for the visiting alumni. It promises to offer the comfort of learning bereft of anxieties. No sooner had I climbed behind the podium to teach my class than I saw Professor Amina Panoni and Professor Firuza Kazemzadeh sitting in the front seat. If one was to name three or four doyans of Iranian studies in the world, Two of them were now sitting in my class. They were keenly and kindly looking at me. It might have been with a class without quiz for everyone else, but for me, it was like another graduate study exam. My first instinct, truly, was to feign a bad migrant and leave. But I lacked the operatic skills to carry out such an exit. I also knew that Amina Banani was an opera aficionado and would easily see through my faint absence. I have no memory of what I said that day, what questions people asked, but one enduring recollection remains. With virtually every sentence, I had half an eye on their faces, wondering whether these two luminaries were giving me a passing grade. Amina Banani was a man of faith and family, of grace and erudition of discipline and dedication. Though Iran has been cruel and indiscriminate in its brutal treatment of his Baha'i faith, he remained all his life a tireless source of encouragement for the study of Iran and promoting the riches of its culture and history. Long before interdisciplinary studies became an academic fad, Banani embodied in his wisdom, curiosities, and publications, 
and interdisciplinary approach. His students, no less than his impressive body of public work, are a testimony to this disposition. His students include historians and literary critics, and his works include everything from writings about Ayn and two icons of women's rights in Iran, to the minutiae of modernization in Iran, and a comparison between Persian myth and Homer's Iliad. And I think much of what he loved in his life is here tonight. His loving and beloved family, a community of scholars from different disciplines and domains, some of them his one-time students, Iran's preeminent playwright and a writer like Professor Bahiyeyan Akhjavani, in my view, the best Iranian-born writer of fiction working in English. And I think he would have particularly taken joy in the news I received uh, yesterday and I want to share with you. I learned that Professor Nakhjavani's remarkable novel, novel about Qurratulain, called A Woman Who Read Too Much, will hopefully be soon published by Stanford University Press as one of the few novels the press has ever decided to publish. <clears throat> and to get a measure of Amina Banoni, the man, and his dedication to the world of ideas, and to Stanford University, and to our Iranian studies program, let me share with you another story. Soon after we launched our program, I invited him to come and give a lecture. He graciously accepted. I then asked him whether he would accept our invitation to teach a seminar or a workshop. He again agreed, and before long, he sent a detailed plan for a seminar that would have been a capstone of his many scholarly endeavors. He was by then sadly already sick, requiring regu regular visits to a hospital. He began locating the right centers and hospitals near Stanford and setting up appointments. He planned to fly in, visit the hospital, teach his class, and then return home to Los Angeles. But alas, as Behaqi says, qaza dar kamin bud, kar Or as Shakespeare would say, the whirly gig of time brought its revenges. His health took a turn for the worst, and we were deprived of the pleasure of having hosted him for our seminar. Amin Banani was also a man of infinite jest, with a sense of humor that was as supple and sophisticated as it was searing and honest. I was interviewing him about the last days of Reza Shah, before Soviet and British, British forces occupied in Iran in 1941, and whether he thought Iran's relations with Nazi Germany played a role in determining Iran's wartime fortunes. Ever aware of the poignancy of a well-connected anecdote, uh, Professor Banoni said, let me tell you the story of the last birthday celebration of Iran's then crown prince, Mohammad Reza Shah. It was, he said, uh, uh, in 1940, I was a boy scout. Then with the pith and parsimony that was characteristics of his discourse, he describes months of planning with military-like discipline and the effort to highlight Iran's boy scouts as the new symbols of Iran's modernization. In the soccer stadium where the birthday celebration was held, 
Boy Scouts were to march onto the field, rapidly set up their tents, and then when one tent was put on fire, the Scots would, with iron discipline, run to douse the flames with buckets of water. The guest of honor that year, he said, was von Schirach, the leader of the Nazi youth group and one of the poster children of Nazi ideology. Then with his unique half smile, Professor Banoni said, in all of our months of preparation, we had never actually put out a fire. We had not known how flammable the tents were. And the second our uh, much exercise in martial arts and our uh, function as a choreographed metaphor for modernization began, it turned into a frenzy of fleeing frightened boys in disheartening disarray. Hard to imagine a more parsimonious but insightful account of those days and Iran's troubled modernization history. Let me end by announcing a new beginning. If he's here in spirit, and I hope he is, I think he would have taken delight in what I'm about to briefly report to you. We are launching what Professor Neymark referred to as the Stanford Festival of Persian Arts. As a first good news, let me tell you that we now have here at Stanford the collected papers of Hushangi Gulshiri, one of the, uh, Iran's most acclaimed modernist writers. I don't think any such collection of a major Persian artist exists anywhere in the world. Second, Professor Bezai, with the capable assistance of Mojdeh Shamsai, the British are calling, an eminent actress of stage and cinema, have already conducted auditions for our planned staging of a Bahram Bezai play. Some 30 of the most promising actors have been picked by Professor Bezai, and in the next few weeks, they will conduct a three-week-long workshop, and the most promising of them will be chosen by him to participate in a play we will stage of his. We have already begun planning for a day-long conference on street art in Iran, with exhibits and artists participating in panels curated by our own Allah Ebtekar. We are working with the ever-gracious Connie Wolf, the curator of Stanford's Cantor Museum, to enrich the university's collection of Iranian arts of all sorts. Finally, in the next few months, we hope to host two performances by Maestro Shajarian and Mohsen Namju. The first, the quintessence of classical Persian music, and the second, a harbinger of a new revolution in music in Iran. While we must accept, sadly, that the best amongst us has left, but to no small part because of his support and affection for Stanford, because of his families and the Taslimi Foundation's general support, because of the vision and generosity of people like Hamida and Christina Mogadam, Bita Daryabari, Hassan and Mahvashi Milani, I hope we can say that the best is yet to come. As with all great men, in Amina Banani's end was many new beginnings. Thank you. Good evening, friends. My name is Sheila Banani. I'm Amin Banani's wife. And I can tell you I've been looking forward to this event 
ever since I heard that Dr. Milani, in his kindness, wanted to have a memorial for my husband. I mean, loved Stanford beyond belief since I was a Bruin and my daughters are Bruins. And I mean, taught at UCLA for 30 some years. Nevertheless, his heart is here at Stanford. Now I want to uh, relay to you uh, another significance to this evening. A century ago, actually in 1912, Stanford University's president at the time, David Starr Jordan, invited Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, who was at that time a man about 70 years of age, to come to Stanford and to address the student body. When he came, he spoke on the importance of world peace. And of course, as you historians know, those of you who are historians, in 1912, the war, the First World War was revving up. This was an important talk that Abdu'l-Bahá gave and many people attended. I think I read someplace something like 2,000 student body and faculty included. That historic visit of Abdu'l-Bahá to Stanford was the instrumental attraction for Amin and a few others of the boys from Iran. That includes Firuz Kazemzadeh, who is with us tonight, and Nasrullah Rasekh, who would have been here if his health permitted. These uh, boys came to study at Stanford in the middle of the Second World War. By that time, they arrived actually in the month of February 1944. They came through the Pacific which was a war zone, and uh, the stories they, from Iran to India and ultimately landing in San Pedro, California. And I mean, used to love to tell that story. I'm sure everyone in the room has heard that story, and I'm not going to tell it again, uh, but uh, perhaps Firuz will refer to it. Now, to make this uh, memory a little bit more personal, I want to tell you that when the ship docked in San Pedro, the nine Persian boys, they're, they're known as the Persian boys to this day, even though, dare I say it, Firuz is 87. 89. 89, oh, sorry. I lost track of a couple of years. All right. Uh, we still call them the Persian boys. Uh, they contacted, when they arrived, they contacted the Los Angeles Baha'i Center. And uh, the first event that they attended, which was, I think, like a day or two after they arrived in the States, was a Baha'i talk at which my father, Charles Wolcott, was the chairman of the event. Now, I did not attend that event. I was about 12 years old, so it's probably just as well I did not meet these boys at that time. <laughs> My father 
was the head of the music department at uh, Walt Disney Studios. And you know, Mickey Mouse was known around the world, even in the 40s. So when Daddy invited them to lunch at the studio to meet Walt Disney, of course, this was a big, exciting event for them. And one I was to hear about later from Amin. Five or six years later, when Amin was completing his PhD here at Stanford, I was part of a small group of youth, Baha'i youth in Los Angeles, planning a Baha'i youth conference. By this time, it was July 1950. And Amin was invited to the conference, and so we met for the first time in July 1950. Now, he was surprised uh, to learn that I was only 17 at the time and about to enter UCLA as a freshman. But as he told me later, he was already smitten. <laughs> and a correspondence began between the two of us when he returned to Stanford and I started UCLA because of course those were the days before cell phones and texting and more immediate forms of communication. Several months later, on February 11, 1951, seven years after he had entered the United States, and after we received the consent for marriage from our parents, his parents being in Iran, my parents in California, we were married in my parents' home in Hollywood. Our honeymoon, we flew to London, and I met Amin's parents at that time, and his sister, Violette Narjavoni, with her husband and three-year-old daughter, Bahie. Bahie is in the audience with us tonight and will be speaking. When we returned from our honeymoon, uh, which was now summertime in 1951, we looked for a place we could afford to rent uh, here in Palo Alto. And uh, since we would be subsisting on, as I recall, about $250 a month from a research job that I mean had at the time at the Hoover Institution here on campus. So to give you a flavor of life at that time, in Palo Alto, we found a one-bedroom furnished apartment, including utilities, for $90 a month. <laughs> this was a stretch for us. That uh, apartment was located on Addison Avenue, 181 Addison Avenue. It was very old, even then. A big house divided into a duplex, and we rented one side for a couple of years we lived there. And it was there that we brought home our first baby, Suzanne, who was born at the Stanford Hospital in November 1952. And Suzanne is here tonight with us. Now, 62 years later, in 2014, this whole area in Palo Alto has gone through many changes. But I, I want to interrupt this story. It was something I discovered on the Source of All Knowledge Wikipedia as I was preparing for what I would say to you today. And when we look back from a long distance over the events in our lives, 
and try to see threads which mysteriously weave our lives together. Some say our destiny. Who could have foreseen that I mean and I from two sides of the planet would meet and marry and create this pattern? So I want to tell you about a stray thread I discovered on Wikipedia regarding the first home I mean and I selected in Palo Alto on Addison Avenue. For those in the audience, in particular, who are more involved in the world of electronics than humanities, and I'm sure there is some overlap anyway, I think you'll be interested to learn this. There is a home in Palo Alto, a couple of blocks from where we first lived, located at 367 Addison Avenue, and looking very much like ours, which was first occupied in 1905 by Dr. John Spencer and his family. Dr. Spencer later became the first mayor of Palo Alto in 1909. And who knows, he could have attended the talk by Abdu'l-Bahá here at Stanford, 1912, since it was a large event. In 1918, that big house was divided into two separate apartments, like ours was. In 1938, newly married Dave and Lucille Packard moved into 367 Addison Avenue. The first floor, three-room apartment, like ours, with their friend, Bill Hewlett, sleeping in the shed. It was like a garage, just like what we had, only we didn't sleep in it. By this time, Mrs. Spencer was widowed, and she had moved to the second floor of apartment of that house. Hewlett and Packard began to use their one-car garage with $538 in capital, and in 1939, Hewlett and Packard formed their partnership with a coin toss, creating the name Hewlett Packard. Hewlett Packard's first product built in that garage was an audio oscillator, the HP 200A. Eight oscillators, I should say, uh, one of Hewlett Packard's first customers was Walt Disney Studios, which purchased eight oscillators to test and certify the sound system in theaters that were going to run the first major film released by Disney in stereophonic sound, Fantasia, a film on which my father worked at Disney's and for which he wrote the jazz interlude music in Fantasia. These are the threads. The HP garage is not open for public tours now, but the property can be viewed from the sidewalk and the driveway. The HP garage was designated a California registered landmark in 1987 and in 2007 was put on the National Register of Historic Places. The home I mean and I lived in at 181 Addison Avenue until the summer of 1953 is still there, but restored to a one-family residence and not a landmark. 
though we would drive by it every time we came to Stanford, no matter what, we found time to go by the house, see if it was still there. In the summer of 1953, we left the country with our baby daughter to live in Greece for the next five years and following our return to California in the summer of 1958, we sequentially moved for I mean to teach, first at Stanford, then Reed College in Portland, Oregon, then back to Harvard, then finally settling at UCLA in 1963 where I mean taught for the last years of his life. In 1965, I'm taking you back a little ways, I mean had a grant which allowed him to spend a few months back in Iran. And while there, he met and recorded conversations with some of the well-known poets, such as Farooq Farakzad, who two years later, 1967, died in an automobile accident. Also, Ahmad Shamlou, Mehdi Akhavan, Sohrab Seperi. And he recorded those conversations. A beautiful book called Bride of Acacias, Selected Poems of Farooq Farakzad, was produced by Amin, translating her poems into English, with UCLA poet Yasha Kessler. And this book, now out of print, unfortunately, was published in 1982, Bride of Acacias. And I'd like to end my remarks with reading of one of the poems of Farakzad's, which he called Union. Those dark pupils, ah, those simple hermit Sufis of mine, fainting, wrapped in the music of his eyes. I saw him breaking over me in waves, like the red glow of fire, like a watery reflection, like a cloud tremulant with rains, like a sky breathing summery warmth towards infinity, spreading beyond the life here. I saw the marrow of my being melting in the movement of his hands. I saw his heart held wholly by the vagrant, charmed echoing of my heart. The hour flew, the curtain blew off in the wind. I had pressed him in the aura of the flames. I wanted to speak, but strange, the shadowing weight of his eyelashes streamed from the depths of darkness during that long reach of desire and that shuddering, that death-tainted shuddering down to my lost roots. I saw myself released. I saw myself released. I saw the skin encasing me split by my swelling love I saw my molten mass smelted slowly <laughs> and poured out, poured out, poured out on the moon. The moon sunk in the deep, the dark, stormy moon, 
crying out in one another. That whole shifting instant of union we madly lived in one another. Thank you. وصف ایرج میرزا بر مزار خودش اینجا بر مزار امین بنانی هم صادق است مدفن عشق جهان است اینجا یک جهان عشق نهان است اینجا امین اولین فرزند موسا و سمیحه بنانی روز اول مهر 1305 خورشیدی در تهران به دنیا آمد سالهای کودکی و نوجوانی و دوران آموزش ابتدایی و بخشی از دوران دبیرستانش را در کنار خواهر و برادرهایش در تهران گذران در هفته سالگی و در بهبوهه جنگ جهانی دوم تصمیم گرفت که همراه جمعی از رفقایش آزم آمریکا شود. قافله نه نفری آنها که در آمریکا به پسران ایرانی معروف شدند با دشواری های بسیار از راه زمین و دریا و سوار بر کامیون، قطار و کشتی های ارتش آمریکا پس از چند ماه سفر و از مسیر هند و استرالیا در سال 1943 به غرب آمریکا رسید. کمتر از یک سال پس از ورود به آمریکا امین تحصیلات دبیرستانیش را به عنوان دانش آموز ممتاز تمام کرد و بلافاصله در دانشگاه استنفورد پذیرفته شد. سه سال بعد در 1947 از این دانشگاه در رشته تاریخ مدرک کارشناسی و دو سال بعد از دانشگاه کلمبیا مدرک کارشناسی ارشد گرفت. فیروز کازمزاده دوست همه این سالهای او و یکی از جمع نه نفره پسران ایرانی در پیش درآمدی بر کتابی که در بزرگ داشت و منتشر شده میگوید امین قصد داشت کشاورزی بخواند اما آشنایی با آلبر لونگرار استادش در دانشگاه استنفورد او را به سمت ادبیات و تاریخ کشاند good fortune and happiness, I put the feet of several individuals, all of whom are alive and with us tonight, namely Ferdosi, Khalyan, Rumi, Saadi, Hafez, مطالعات وسیع امین در این زمینه چند سال بعد در همان دانشگاه استنفورد به دانشنامه دکتری او منتهی شد. زمان فارسی بسیار زمان زیبایی است. من عاشق فارسی هستم. یعنی که از اون زمانهایی که همه چیزش سر جاست. این موسیقی که میده به هر حرفی که شما میزنید این چیز مفتی نیست خیلی به نظر من ارزش داره در سال 1951 همین با شیلا ولکات ازدواج کرد و دو سال بعد آنها به همراه دخترشان سوسن 
در اجرای نقشه تبلیغی که شوقی افندی رهبر جامعه جهانی بهایی برای اشاعه آموزه های این آین در سراسر جهان تر کرده بود به یونان رفتند تا برای نخستین بار اسم این دیانت را در آن کشور مطرح کنند. آنها به همین سبب مثل بعضی دیگر از اعضای خانواده امین بنانی در زمره گروه معدودی از مهاجرین بهایی قرار گرفتند که به عنوان فارسان مدنیت الهی شناخته می شوند. به گفته فیروز کازمزاده برخلاف بعضی دانشگاهیان که موفقیت را تنها در پژوهش های دانشگاهی جستجو می کنند امین غنای زندگیش را با خدماتش به جامعه جهانی بهایی بیشتر کرد. او بارها به عضویت هیئت نمایندگی این جامعه در سازمان ملل درآمد و در سال 1955 به ژنو اعزام شد تا برای جلوگیری از نقض فاحش حقوق بشری بهاییان در ایران دادخواهی کند. بخش مهم دیگری از زندگی امین روابط خانوادگی و دوستی هایش بود. از سفر لذت می برد و به همراه شیلا و دو دخترشان سوسن و لیلا بارها به اطراف جهان سفر کرد. رابطهش با گروه پسران ایرانی را تا زندگی امانداد حفظ کرد و هر دوستی تازهش تا پایان عمر دوام پیدا کرد. امین بنانی کار دانشگاهی را با تدریس تاریخ در آتن یونان شروع کرد و پس از آن در استنفورد، کالج رید و هاروارد به تدریس تاریخ و ادبیات ادامه داد. تاریخ واقعا سرگذشت فقط یه عده مخصوص یا یه آدم به خصوصی نیست. تاریخ سرگذشت بشری است و غیر ممکنه که انسان بهش نزدیک بشه و عاشقش نشه در سال 1963 برای راهندازی برنامه مطالعات ایران به دعوت دانشگاه کالیفرنیا در لس آنجلس به آنجا رفت و طی بیش از سی سال تدریس در این دانشگاه برنامه وسیع و جامعی در ایران شناسی را پیریخت که منجر به تأسیس نخستین دوره کارشناسی با تمرکز ایران شناسی در یک دانشگاه آمریکایی شد. ارتباط او با فرهنگ و ادب ایران و مطالعات تاریخی وسیعش در این زمینه دستاوردهای فراوانی به بار آورد. نخستین کار مهم او نوسازی ایران 1921-1941 که بیش از 50 سال پیش منتشر شد تا امروز از کتابهای مرجع در مطالعات ایران شناسی است. مجموعه گفتگوهای گرداریتیکو با شاعران معاصر ایران که به همت او ضبط شد گنجینه نفیسی از شعرخانی های فروغ فرخزاد و احمد شاملو در آن روزگار را در خود دارد کتاب های عروس عقاقی و تاهره تکچهرهی در شعر با معرفی امین بنانی و ترجمه های زیبای و از شعرهای فروغ تاهره با کمک یاشا کسلر یادگار ارزنده دیگری از او برای دوستداران ادبیات ایران است آخرین کار بزرگ امین در همکاری با شادروان حسین زیایی ایجاد کرسی مطالعات آین باهایی در بخش ایران شناسی دانشگاه UCLA بود هرچند شعر، ادبیات و تاریخ دقدقه های اصلی بنانی بودند اما او شیفته همه شکل هنر و فرهنگ بود از موسیقی بسیار لذت می برد و حسرت زندگیش این بود که نواختن هیچ سازی را نیاموخت برم موسیقی مثل نفس کشیدنه اگر نباشه 
منم نیستم در روزها و ماههای بیماری شنیدن موسیقی کلاسیک غربی لذت مداومش بود روانش شاد و پروازش پر موسیقی بود I do not intend to speak of Amin's uh, scholarship and his accomplishments. I want to talk about the young Amin, the student who did not complete um, middle school, high school in Tehran, and therefore on his arrival in this country had to be exiled to a small school in the Santa Cruz mountains the Montezuma School for Boys, where under the guidance of Prof. Rogers, a, an eccentric and very interesting individual, I mean, completed his high school instead of about three years that he had to go in just about six months. When we arrived in San Francisco, we had letters of introduction to some individuals here, one of whom was the wife of a vice president of the Southern Pacific Railroad. As such, the gentleman, her husband, had unlimited gasoline coupons, which of course in wartime was extremely rare. And so one day, this charming lady said to me, you know, two of my daughters went to Stanford. I think you should go and take a look at the university. I had never heard of Stanford University. Why not? It's an interesting trip to Palo Alto. So we went down to Palo Alto. I saw the place, and I said, this is beautiful. 
my English is quite imperfect, and maybe I should enter this unknown university, <laughs> learn some English, and then go to one of the two universities of which I knew, namely Harvard and Columbia. Well, I entered Stanford and got stuck here <laughs> to get a BA and MA. Of course, I told Amin and Nasrullah Rasekh and Shidan Fatazam, my very close friends, that I was going to Stanford. And Amin said, well, maybe I should do the same. Maybe I also should enter Stanford. He was told that there was no school of agriculture here, and this was not the proper place to prepare himself for agriculture. Never mind, he said. And so he, too, entered Stanford just a few months after, after me. I entered in April. He entered in uh, the following September. Now, Stanford, it turned out, came to play a major role in Amin's life. Originally, as I said, following his father's wishes, he was to study uh, agriculture. But at Stanford, he was exposed to sciences and arts with which he was not familiar that really affected him uh, very much. Stanford was attractive in so many ways. First of all, it was like Rabelais' Abetelem, an enchanted uh, land, so beautiful. And it has preserved some of its beauty even to this day. Uh, while one can argue with some of, a, of the uh, more modern buildings, uh, it still is a place of great beauty and uh, charm. Amin and I <clears throat> shared our uh, residences. One of them was Sequoia Hall, which now I understand is some kind of a scientific building but at that time was a dormitory with a terrible reputation. It was stated that one day a student was thrown out the window of the second floor while sleeping in his bed. So we uh, spent a semester there, and I remember the dates because it was at Sequoia Hall that Amin and I doing our uh, evening's work, heard on the radio that a strange bomb had exploded over Hiroshima. And later it was explained that this was an atomic, uh, a nuclear weapon. Uh, so it sort of got completely imprinted in my mind uh, forever. We also lived across the street here in Encina Hall uh, for a while. And we formed some wonderful friendships that have lasted uh, for the rest of uh, our lives. Uh, uh, Nas Rasekh was one of them. Hafez Farman Farmayan, uh, who is now an emeritus professor at the University of Texas. Uh, Graham Conroy, now an emeritus professor of philosophy at uh, uh, Portland State College. Uh, Chris Kaiser, uh, Dick Bors, who sh shortly after graduating from Stanford 
alas, uh, committed suicide. But these were people with whom I mean associated during his years at Stanford. We had discussions in and out of class, and we all profited by the presence at Stanford of some very, very remarkable uh, teachers. I must mention uh, some of them. In philosophy, for instance, John Reed, an atheist whose ideas were so different from ours, but he taught us precision in our thinking, and we are grateful to him for that. In fact, one day in class, I got into a lively discussion with him, and when he said to me, well, what is this philosophy that you are trying to preach? I said, sir, this is the Persian version of Reed's Creed. <laughs> there was Kurt Reinhardt, who uh, was a very German and a very Catholic uh, philosopher, and he discussed the years that preceded the coming of Hitler in Germany and the thought, European thought, of those unfortunate uh, years. There was Ivor Winters, a distinguished poet and literary critic uh, whose courses both Amin and I uh, took and with whom we were very much impressed. There was Jan Popper, who later left Stanford for UCLA, and uh, there is now a theater at UCLA in his, in his name. And of course, there was also Uncle Wayne, Professor Vucinich, who really was not so much a teacher to us as a personal uh, friend and encourager and uh, of whom all of those who knew him, rem uh, whom all of those uh, who knew him remember with a great deal of affection. It was also at Stanford that the doors really were opened uh, to, I mean, to Western classical music. Uh, I myself was raised in Moscow. I was very familiar with classical music. I had been to the opera for the first time at the age of five, uh, Rimsky-Korsakov's Tale of Tsar Sultan. But now, since I had season tickets and was going to the opera all the time, some of my Persian friends, including Amin, and on occasion, on a rare occasion, I must say, uh, Nasser Asseh and later Hafez Farman Varma also started going to the opera, and Amin took to it as a, uh, like a duck to water. He became, in a very, very quick time, an expert on uh, opera and uh, progressed from lighter pieces to Wagner himself uh, and <clears throat> even would spend time and money following the product productions of the Ring of Nibelungen from one opera house to the other, even crossing the, the continent. I must say with uh, due regard to sensitivities, that this is, was the one thing that he did not share with Sheila. She was not an opera fan, 
but he would not be deterred even by family considerations and listened to the opera and sometimes played it loudly. <laughs> now, of course, uh, all of us coming, all of the Persian boys coming from uh, Iran had uh, linguistic problems at first. Uh, again, I had a certain advantage over the others uh, because I knew uh, Russian, I was more familiar with Latin uh, Roman script. So I took, uh, in the classes that I'm in, Nasr and I shared, I took notes. I took notes in Russian. Then we would go back to our uh, room and I would translate from my bad English into a bad Persian <laughs> what, what these things were all about. But apparently, it was of some value to both Nas and, and Amin because they remembered it with, uh, with a degree of um, gratitude, which was uh, quite surprising. Now, uh, leaving aside these personal reminiscences, I would like only to say one thing about, uh, I mean, in a larger sense, as a student and as a uh, scholar. Because of the kind of education that he received at Stanford and musically in San Francisco uh, next door, I mean, was confronted with the problem which was not new, which was first experienced perhaps by Russian intellectuals in the 18th century. And that was the problem of how do you integrate the West and your own tradition? In Amin's case, how do you integrate the Western and the Iranian? He loved Persian literature even as a youngster. In fact, he was horrified by my bad Persian and even taught me the Golestan, uh, laughing at my mispronunciations and misunderstandings of what to him were simple sentences. But the problem of integration uh, remained uh, for, for Amin as for uh, so many others. And he managed to surmount the differences. Now, very few people have been able to do that. Among Persian intellectuals, perhaps Amin was rare in that respect, that when he finished with his education and later in his scholarly career, there were not two people, one European educated, the other devoted to the traditional Iranian music, uh, arts, and literature. Somehow these merged. And I have only one example that I can give you uh, in, in history and in the arts of that kind of perfect integration where the conflict disappears, where there is no more a clash of two cultures. And that is the great, I should say the greatest Russian poet, Alexander Pushkin. Uh, of all the Russian writers, he was the only one who managed the trick. And for me to say, for me, a lover of Pushkin, to say that I mean achieved something like that is the greatest compliment I can give uh, to my uh, 
dear and lifelong friend, Amin. I was the last graduate student of Dr. Banani, whose dissertation he supervised. Mrs. Banani and Professor Kazimzada talked eloquently about Amin, the person. These reminiscences are of such great value. We learned a good deal about his life, his work, his interests. We especially learned how a multidimensional a person he was. I'm going to talk a little bit about his scholarship. I mean the scholar, if I may. From a pure disciplinary perspective, Amin Banani was a historian. At the time, he started his academic career as a historian of Iran and the Islamic world within the confines of area studies, the core of the dominant mode of writing on and about the history of the non-European, non-Western world was, to a large extent, derived from a Eurocentric, often colonially produced system of knowledge. Amin, however, was acutely aware of the conceptual and epistemological inadequacies, as well as the moral and ethical limitations of this perspective. On the other hand, in no way was he enamored by what he saw as the burgeoning anti-colonial romance that propagated the emergence and consolidation of the modern post-colonial nation states in various parts of Asia, Africa, and Latin America. As sensitive as he was towards the effects of colonial discourse and the reconceptualization of the past, he simply found most of the emancipatory hopes embodied in the romantic anti-colonialist moment in much of the third world rather illusory and intellectually vacuous. The teleological historicism of Eurocentric modernity I just referred to reflected the groundbreaking beginnings of European nation states in the early parts of the 19th century. It was during this crucial period that a comprehensive philosophy of history with the question of the nation state at its very core was postulated. A nation began to imply the attachment to a particular territory, a shared culture, and an assertion of common history and tradition. The crux of the matter resides in the fact that this idea of the nation was linked to the acceptance of the state as a legitimate and legitimizing institution with the claim to represent the nation and safeguard its self-government and political independence. It was widely accepted that a nation without a proper state will have little to write about and hence has no history. I believe that perhaps in direct response to the limitations Amin saw in this historicist perspective in his early work, The Modernization of Iran, he offered a trenchant yet judicious and balanced critique of Reza Shah and by extension, the entire enterprise of authorized state-sanctioned official historiography of modern Iran. Reza Shah drew his power from two sources, I mean argued, an aroused spirit of nationalism and a strong autocratic centralized control. As an astute comparative historian, 
Benoni was quick to point out that, and I quote, although in many emerging underdeveloped societies, these two sources of power have proved to be of equal influence, in Iran, by far, the greater motive force was the absolute state, end quote. Yet, he was no less skeptical about nationalism. Readers of Amin's seminal essay on Ahmad Kasravi, whom he called a dissonant and dissatisfied voice in the era of the savior of the nation, that is Reza Shah, may recall that there, without questioning the fundamental role nationalism played in Iran, especially in the 20th century, Amin expressed grave skepticism about what nationalism, claim, nationalism claims itself to be an act and what it can actually lead to. He was well aware of and quite alarmed by what he would call the negative aspects of nationalism, the virulent, irrational, and frustrating elements of nationalism. The state-enforced and regulated nationalism had much deleterious effects on the culture and education, he thought. Kasravi seemed to fascinate Banani from early on in his scholarly research. He not only discussed them, albeit briefly, in the crucial conclusion to his book, The Modernization of Iran, he also contributed a significant chapter about Kasravi's nationalist motivations to a collection of essays called Nation and Ideology, which was intended as a, uh, as a festschrift in honor of his own teacher and friend, Wayne Vosinich, whose name several times was uh, referred to uh, in previous talks as well. A lifelong Stanford historian of East European studies with whom Amin worked and uh, he was a friend of. And by the way, a PhD from Berkeley. Uh, especially, uh, Banani was concerned with the arbitrarily manipulative efforts of Kasravi towards the so-called purification of the Persian language, i.e. his self-righteous crusade of purifying Persian or eliminating from it all traces of Arabic. For Banani, purification of language, and I quote, which he called a disease, by the way, is not only motivated by nationalism, but it is also one of the more definable symptoms of that complex ideology. What Banoni found to be extremely significant in Kasravi's attempt to purify Persian was the fact that, and I quote, purification had evolved from being a symptom of nationalism to becoming a symbol of its exclusiveness. It, it defeats its own highest nationalist motive, for it acts as a divisive force within Persian and widens the chasm between the Persians and the Persian-speaking peoples beyond the country's borders." End quote. This last statement clearly indicates that Banani was very much interested in thinking of Persian above and beyond the juridical, political, state-designed, and state-enforced boundaries that divide the Persian-speaking world and the modern contemporary era. He never failed to mention, in private as well as in public forums, that Persian was not and could never be the exclusive possession of any one modern nation state, more precisely of Iran. Rather, he saw the Persian language and the Persian literary heritage perforce as a domain shared in common by at least three modern nation state formations. The worldview of Banani, unlike that of so many nationalist scholars of Persian today, transcended narrow, nationally defined, territorially confined, 
and ahistorical readings of the vast literary reservoir of the past and dynamic cultural present of Persian. Perhaps for this very reason, a critical yet productive engagement with Persian literature, both of classical and modern periods, became of paramount importance to the scholarship of Amin Banoni. For Banoni, it is important to introduce to the wider reading public the long, the long and venerable Persian poetic traditions containing an illustrious history, many profound thinkers, and innumerable uh, poets as a wide, as, to as wide an audience as possible. In many ways, Amin Banoni acknowledged the significance of comparative inter-literary and intra-literary studies, both within the vast geographical span of the Persian-speaking milieu and in relation to other literary traditions. As a historian and literary scholar, Banani knew very well of the practical limitations of what has long been termed world literature and world republic of letters. He knew that any such republic of letter will be perforce a very unequal republic, an uneven field, indisputably dominated by institutional authority of the literature or literatures of the mighty and the powerful. Needless to say, Amin was well aware that there have been so many historical precedents where the shadow of hegemonic powers overwhelms not only the economic and the political, but also the cultural, principally the literary and the linguistic arenas in the global sense. Nevertheless, it seems to me that the idea of world literature remained remarkably appealing to Amin. He genuinely believed in Goethe's announcement that poetry is the universal possession of mankind and that national literature is now a rather unmeaning term. The epoch of world literature is at hand and everyone must strive to hasten its approach. I can imagine Amin agreeing with François Juste or Juste when, he, uh, when the latter claimed that national literature cannot constitute an intelligible field of study because of its arbitrarily limited perspective, and that comparative literature represents more than an academic discipline. It is an overall view of literature, of the world of letters, a humanistic ecology, a literary Weltentrung, a vision of cultural universe, inclusive and comprehensive. From the very early on in his scholarly work, Amin Banani had discovered that the literary scene in the global context increasingly required the introduction of authors from non-European or non-Western world. The Western canon need not be supplanted. It needs to be supplemented, Banani clearly thought. He strongly advocated the comparative analysis of literature in order to have the metropolitan West and the peripheral rest build a productive, shared human tradition away from parochialism and provincialism. Above all, it is literature that helps us elaborate a narrative frame to encourage the depressing and universal needs of humanity today. I mean, Banoni's writings are exemplary in the sense that his reflections on and critical analyses of Persian literature, whether modern or classical, show his undeniable comparative knowledge of various literary and cultural traditions. They are also exemplary in terms of being inter and cross-disciplinary in nature. In his seminal essays dealing with topics such as conversion and conformity in the Qabus Namao, or the art of tragic epic in the Shahnama, the poetic and the doctrinal work of Rumi, the Safavid cultural intellectual history, the poetic 
uh, and the poetry of Qoratul uh, Ain in Furugh Farukzad, for instance. In all of these works, the reader finds, on the one hand, the penetrating and searching eye of an academic historian looking at select texts from the grand heritage of Persian history and literary tradition, and on the other hand, the sensitive, thought-provoking and refreshing eye of a literary scholar and critic reading history and appraising social and cultural forces and motivations that shape the contours of the historical context. And here lies, in my view, Amin Banani's unique contribution to Persian literary scholarship. Let me conclude by saying that Amin Banani was a scholar of unwavering principle. Even when Amin was engaged with his own demanding research, he would never fail to act as a model mentor and remarkable advisor to his students, especially his graduate students. He, had, he would read and often reread theses and dissertations as closely as possible, provided copious suggestions and insightful recommendations, and offered constructive and authoritative criticisms. His students and colleagues saw in him a man of impeccable integrity and very serious intent, yet also a gentleman in the best sense of the word, a man with a sense of unbound generosity of spirit and an acute sense of dignity and modesty. To me personally, Amin Banani was a constant source of inspiration and encouragement. My own intellectual and scholarly growth, as well as my progress in the academic ladder, owes much to his limitless encouragement, active advice, and extremely supportive recommendations. He will be sorely missed by his students, colleagues, and countless friends and admirers. We've heard from so many illustrious people this evening. I ask myself, what am I doing here? I'm the three-year-old niece and very privileged indeed. And I want to start by thanking, first of all, you, dear Professor Milani, and also Professor Nymark, for this enormous privilege of being part of this evening's celebration of such a remarkable life. Although I know that I don't merit this privilege, and I certainly don't have the credentials for the honor, I ask myself, well, what can I contribute that hasn't been said already? And I ended up by reducing it in the selfish way that we usually do to those things that most touched me in my life, in my relationship to my dear uncle, namely the impact that his words and his silences have had on me throughout my life. It's been said already, and I want to begin with that, that my uncle Amin loved language. He was a jeweler when it came to expressing his thoughts appropriately. He was an artificer who enhanced the gem-like value of his ideas in the chastened gold of his pure prose. He was able to construct just verbally speaking in a colloquial manner, the unwinding thread of a single sentence he used to capture in, that, in the phrases he used, 
concepts that were so elegantly expressed and so delicately nuanced that to listen to him was to be adorned and not only informed. He could, with the sort of fitness of idiom and deftness of locution, choose the exact adjective, the perfect verb, to sum up exactly what he wanted to say, leaving you graced as well as enlightened by his opinions. It seemed effortless, except that the polish of his prose indicated with what care he had perfected this craft. He was also a connoisseur of words. He knew how to discriminate and distinguish between them. His relationship to language reflected the luster of a fine wine drawn from long years of sensitive reading. There was hardly a phrase that he used that didn't have its roots in poetry, hardly a metaphor that he tossed into the conversation that didn't resonate with the rich maxims of his mother tongue. And he took such irrepressible pleasure in this mingling of sound and sense that he could intoxicate his listeners. Not only what he was saying, but the way he said it would make you drunk. And in addition to being a jeweler and a connoisseur of words, my uncle was an acrobat. He was a juggler of wit and puns. He was a conjurer of linguistic jokes across the languages of Persian and English. His wordplay could set all your senses tingling. He was able to disport himself on the high wires of syntax with the virtuosity of a consummate artist. His delights, as Cleopatra says of Antony, were dolphin-like. They showed his back above the element he lived in. My uncle Amid made words dance. He made them sing. His humor was often outrageous. There were times when he could barely make it to the punchline because its mere anticipation had himself as well as his auditors laughing helplessly. In fact, he didn't merely use language, he confected with it. He imbibed it. He got all the juice and the flavor and the odor out of words. He chose them the way he picked persimmons, the way he smelled melons, the way he cradled courgettes in the market. He assessed their freshness individually before every transaction. It was as if he was savoring every word gauging its aesthetic as well as nutritional value, feeling the weight and the sheen and the smoothness, the texture of the rind, the bloom on the skin of each before sinking his teeth into it. He had inherited from his mother not only the refinement of palate that we knew him for, but an ability to relish the succulence of language to the full. He had a way of biting irony out of a phrase, zest out of a metaphor, and the tang of satire was always left on your tongue after he spoke. To converse with him was to participate in a perpetual feast. But for all his mastery over words, what he valued most, I believe, lay not so much in what was said, 
as in what was inferred. For all his love of language, his ear was also attuned to the gaps, to the silences, to the unspoken beneath the words. His silences could be pregnant. They could be fathomless. If you listen to them carefully, you could hear them resonate with enigmas, with ironies. They were not cynical silences, although they were sometimes sad. They were not all marked by asperity either, though frequently accompanied by that involuntary roll of the eyes, which may have been caused by dryness or mockery. But they were invariably illuminating. His silences were a catalyst for words. They hinted at infinite possibilities, which is why he was such a good teacher, such a good mentor. His silences seemed to be an invitation to make others speak, to make others rush in and say what he had the wisdom to refrain from saying at times. He made one listen to one's words. He made one distinguish between sense and nonsense by saying nothing. And the restraint with which he spoke and the little that he said could also be an extraordinary stimulant. He had a unique capacity to motivate others to write. I think his silences were also a proof of his sagacity. He not only made you acutely sensitive to language, but aware of its pointlessness at times. I remember sitting next to him at a conference once as a rather, forgive me, pompous speaker, which I probably am right at this moment, was speaking on and on and droning on and on in an embarrassing display of self-promotion and poor research, a fatal combination. And the speaker obviously had an ax to grind, and it was quite clear to most of us in the audience listening to him that he was motivated by something like resentment and my uncle, who did not usually suffer fools um, gladly and whose patience and temper did not always stretch to tolerance, showed no hint of irritation on this occasion. He seemed to have sensed the futility of raising any question about the blatant errors being aired, and he noticed me fidgeting beside him uh, in response to this, this speaker, and he murmured in my ear, he said, just let it pass. Don't need to say anything. If you, if you say anything, it will make it worse, he said. <laughs> I often wondered afterwards how many times he's he had exercised the same restraint with me. Although he was a born pedagogue, my, my uncle never pressed his opinions on others. He was ready to share his thoughts with anyone who cared to listen but never compromised his ideas and beliefs by forcing them on the uninterested. Those who knew him well learned to listen most when he said nothing, because truth and beauty were eloquent enough in his opinion to bear witness to themselves. If you tried to pin down a truth, it would escape you. If you protested or pontificated about its beauty, you would betray it. So his silence 
often testified to the depth of his faith. His silences were profound, but never fundamentalist. They were ardent, but contained enough space for relativity and continuity and the progressiveness of ideas. He knew there was only just so far that words could go in trying to sum up the intangible. But there was one way that he reached beyond silence itself, and that was through music. Music spoke most eloquently to him, for its silences contained another dimension altogether. Its rhythms and its flow of sound reached beyond words entirely. The classical music that he loved, both Western and Persian, symbolized all that could and could not be uttered. It contained the ambiguities of love and its loss. It summed up the mysteries of truth and its illusions. I even wondered whether it may not have best defined the human soul for him, since music demands both mental discipline and a leap of the imagination, it contained the ultimate paradox for my uncle. Listening to music was for him the way he was able to square the circle of art and faith. He often said that had he not been a Baha'i, music would have been his religion. The last time I saw my uncle Amin, he went out of his way to bring me to Stanford. He walked around this beautiful campus with me, speaking of his years here, of, his great, of, it, of the great history of this university, and of its associations with the Baha'i faith. That he should have bequeathed his personal library to this institution indicates how much it meant to him. But he left me a personal legacy too. He introduced me to one of his dearest students, Farzone Milani, whose research on Tahrir Ain has been seminal to the field of women's studies and who has become an invaluable friend and a teacher to me in turn. This precious legacy has extended to this honor today for which, since no words can adequately express my thanks to Professor Milani, I offer you my heartfelt silence in his memory. Uh, my name is John Iles. I'm the curator for the Islamic and Middle Eastern collection at Stanford University Libraries. <clears throat> in my work, I have the pleasure of meeting with many scholars, some in person as they manage to locate my office in the maze of the library, Others, through email, requesting sorely needed research materials continue <clears throat> to continue the latest project. And others, through perusing their personal research libraries. All of the contacts are always enlightening and some exciting as I am discussing the project of very animated researchers, uh, be they students or um, seasoned professor. The most interesting contacts for me are the opportunities that I have in seeing and touching the great book collections of respected scholars. There is a lot that I have learned about 
the collectors of these collections in my years of touching and perusing the individual tomes. The result of their years of gathering these books from the far corners of the earth in their quest for knowledge. I have learned a lot about the person by the content and condition of the books. Some books may be worn, but lovingly cared for. Some are annotated in true scholarly style from the manuscript age with the thoughts of the collector or those previous owners of these tomes. It is often very interesting to note items found in these volumes. Frequently I find old photographs between the pages. At other times I find old sales release, uh, <coughs> receipts, used bus tickets, uh, newspaper clippings, some newspaper coupons, yellowed and tattered, and once an old check forgotten and not negotiated. I did return this one to the owner. It was quite old and not negotiable, but they got a laugh out of it. <clears throat> one particular gift collection gave me an insight into the habits of true book lover and avid reader. Many of the volumes in this particular collection in the Persian language had insertions as bookmarks between the pages that were obviously important to the reader. I also learned how this scholar had found time to read so many books as the markers were pieces of bathroom tissue. <laughs> this was evidence of true multitasking. I met Amin Banani early in my position as curator uh, for Stanford. And at that time, he was interested in making a donation of his personal scholarly collection built over a period exceeding 50 years. I had the opportunity to meet Aman, uh, <coughs> Amin, <coughs> pardon me, and look over only a part of the collection as some was already boxed and moved to a temporary location from his office on campus at UCLA. Even with this snapshot view of the collection I had at that time, I was impressed that the contents of the collection were carefully selected. After the boxes of books were moved to Stanford, I had the opportunity to take a longer look at the over 1,500 books on shelves, and I was fully impressed with the quality of selection. There were a number of the classics in the field of Persian literature in English, French, and German that one expects in a library of a scholar in the field. Approximately 50% or more of the collection was, of course, in Persian. And not too surprisingly, there were works of contemporary and classical Persian literature. Included were authors like Ahmed Shamlu, Nizami Ganjavi, Sadiq Hedayat, Jalaluddin Rumi, and many others. But also included were other titles on the history, language, literature, and culture of Iran. One of the amazing things about this important donation was that Amin chose to have a book plate placed in each volume 
honoring Stanford and his mentor, Wayne Vucinich, who we've heard much about this evening. This single gift of a modest but great collection was the seed for what has since begun to grow, to begin to challenge the Persian library uh, collections of much older universities, such as Harvard, Princeton, and even Amin's home institution, UCLA. Don't tell them that. <laughs> we'll come up from behind and scare them. Uh, Let's see, I'm sorry, I lost my place there. Because of the Banani collection, the world knew of this growth, and we had the good fortune to have other gifts being offered to us uh, to nurture the seed. One of the largest was over 7,000 items of history, literature, politics, religion, and far beyond. I also credit this gift for bringing to our doors another great collection. I had the pleasure of meeting a wonderful woman, Arden Lee, and her daughter, Shirin Coleman, in Reno. Arden is another collection who lovingly introduced me to each tome as she tenderly handled them. After this meeting, we were generously gifted her large, important collection dedicated to the Baha'i faith. This unique collection has brought great attention to Stanford from around the world. We have people waiting at our doors to get their hands on some of these. As the curator of the collection, I am very thankful for this modest but fruitful seed planted by Amin Banani and his gift to his alma mater. Stanford is grateful. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, dear guests and members of Professor Banani family, I did not have the fortune of meeting Professor Banani in person, and I feel a great sense of sorrow and loss at this missed opportunity. I was, however, uh, fortunate enough to receive a precious gift from him more than a year before he left us. It was one of his own books, and so few in pages it caught my attention. It was his translation of the poems written by Tahere Qurratul Ain. It also included some of his own commentary, commentaries, commentaries on the poems. Tahere was a great Iranian female figure of two centuries ago, a creative woman, uh, with a great personality, power, and talent in the fields of theology and literature. And she was a rebel against fanaticism and the despotism to lingering parts of Iran's tradition at, that, at the time. She soon became a mythical martyr killed by fundamentalists because in the last decade of her life, she had come to strongly believe in a new religion, one based on equality, justice, and peace uh, for all humankind. Professor Banoni 
sent me his book about Tahir through my daughter. She had, with great enthusiasm, gone to meet him when she was staging her one-act play about Tahereh in Los Angeles in 2010. All my life, I had been thinking about writing a play about Tahereh and reading Professor Banani's uh, book uh, was one of three most important reasons why, after many years, I finally dared tackle uh, the mythical figure that had strongly influenced me since my youth. That influence began when I first read my father's research and writing on the life and work of Tahere. But the sad, but the sad fact is uh, that many of Tahere's poems, writings, as well as much of the biographical details of her life have been destroyed by fundamentalist clergy and their radical disciples. And thus, in trying to create her dramatic persona, it was for me a necessity to fill out these empty spaces and use the few remaining fragments of her poetry to then create in her style poems. I hope she forgives me for this dangerous risk. Indeed, what I am about to read for you uh, are not her words, but poems in her voice created in my new play. Maybe my risky effort is at least partially a psychological resistance against fanatic radical powers who have long tried to erase uh, her memory and her rebellious ideas. The poems I'm about to read are then a dramatic recreation of what are supposed to be her last poems. With their help, uh, I have been able to develop the plot line for my play. I will be rec reciting three of these Tahereh-style poems entitled Tahereh, Marty Martyrdom of a Poem. And I dedicate this reading to memory of Professor Panoni. The, fir the first poem is supposed to be the work of a beginner, a 13-year-old married and pregnant woman. While the poems echo her voice and show her uh, eager eagerness for change, the first poem must and hopefully does reflect her voice early in her, in, in her path. The second poem is my uh, rendition of her voice in the second stage of her life, when she was sure about her new chosen fate and path. It is a short requiem to the martyrs of her new religion. The third poem consists of what I have imagined to be her last words, just before she was murdered. Uh, I beg the indulgence uh, of our non-Persian speaking guests uh, as I will read the poems in her native Persian, uh, hoping that you will enjoy the music and lyrical sensibility 
uh, of her words. The first one is a poem of a beginner. Uh, you know, the name of Zarintaj. Uh, she has many names. Zarintaj was uh, her maternal name. Uh, she has other names, the, the paternal religious name uh, like uh, Fatime, Umm uh, Salame, and others. But here uh, I use the, her maternal name, uh, Zarintaj. در جهان کهنه معنی نو کنم گندم خود را سوا از جو کنم تا که معنی تا برارت خوشه ها پنجه بر هر شاخه ای چون مو کنم قو کند هر کس که میداند زنم با لب خاموش بر وی قو کنم قبله یک جا نیست هر جا آتشی است تور موسا کهنه گشت و نو کنم صورت مه میکشم بر روی شب تا چراغی در ره شب رو کنم تاج سرین تاج بردارم ز سر تا جهان روشن بدین پرتو کنم The second one is the requiem for the martyrs uh, She wrote it in prison in uh, you know uh, her uh, three or four years last three or four years of life, uh, she was in prison. Burratul Ain Ahmadan Hangam, Kibekhun Jagar Shavad Ayam. The same of Tibekhun Jari Shadant, Jangiran Hamchogurgahun Asham. Hunegaran Bijui Miranand, Ummati Ramu Hakemi Badnam. Hakemi Hot Baaleman Mahkum, Aulemi Chandu Jahilani Ham. وین تماشا که می کنید منم تاهره آفتاب بر لب بام دفتر زون را به عدل بشوی نامه تی شد ولی نگشت تمام این تعصب که خون خلق دروست ختم عقل است ختم عقل است در شروع کلام that they are her last words, uh, or her testament. Shah pursued an al-Hakzekujast, Beguat Chahishamami Ayat. Panjadar Huna Daligran Zadei, Rahima as to Jodami Ayat. Man Bichahu to within Jah Biman, Ahamas Chah Farami Ayat. Barsaradar Vayodar Chahand, Harkasash Nome Chodami Ayat. ای که بازیچه خیشی هشدار دست خونین ز عبا می آید مفتی شهر که خون می ریزد مفتش خون جفا می آید تکه بر تخت خدایی زده است از خداییش چه ها می آید چه صداییست در این گمبد چرخ مگر از کشت صدا می آید گله ای خفته و گرگی بیدار از زمان بانگ بلا می آید <تصفيق> 